Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. As I promised at the end of last week's podcast, this week we have some very special guests. There has been a new paper examining the accuracy of information about autism on a very popular social media platform called TikTok. I think TikTok is illegal in China, if I'm right, but it otherwise has 1.6 billion registered users. So therefore, this is a platform that gets a lot of attention and has the power to disseminate either accurate or inaccurate information. Some people use it for videos not saying who to look at cats and also Britney Spears videos, but other people may actually use it to make healthcare decisions. I previously uh, posted a podcast where I talked about this new phenomenon that has been documented in the literature around tics, that there was a uh, upswing of people who had exhibited signs of Tourette's disorder, specifically tics um, and tic disorder after watching some TikTok videos that may or may not have been done authentically around tics and Tourette's. So these are people that did not previously exhibit a tic disorder or Tourette's syndrome, but yet after watching a TikTok video had some signs and symptoms. So it's important that information get conveyed accurately, even on silly social media platforms like TikTok. So on the podcast, I have four authors, the four authors of a new study published that looked at some of the accuracies and inaccuracies of videos on TikTok that relate to autism. So I wanna go ahead and hi everyone, welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. As I promised at the end of last week's podcast, this week we have some very special guests. There has been a new paper examining the accuracy of information about autism on a very popular social media platform called TikTok. I think TikTok is illegal in China, if I'm right, but it otherwise has 1.6 billion registered users. So therefore, this is a platform that gets a lot of attention and has the power to disseminate either accurate or inaccurate information. Some people use it for videos not saying who to look at cats and also Britney Spears videos, but other people may actually use it to make healthcare decisions. I previously uh, posted a podcast where I talked about this new phenomenon that has been documented in the literature around tics, that there was a uh, upswing of people who had exhibited signs of Tourette's disorder, specifically tics um, and tic disorder after watching some TikTok videos that may or may not have been done authentically around tics and Tourette's. So these are people that did not previously exhibit a tic disorder or Tourette's syndrome, but yet after watching a TikTok video had some signs and symptoms. So it's important that information get conveyed accurately, even on silly social media platforms like TikTok. So on the podcast, I have four authors, the four authors, of a new study published that looked at some of the accuracies and inaccuracies of videos on TikTok that relate to autism. So I wanna go ahead and um, allow everyone to introduce themselves. I'm gonna start 
on my screen, um, not alphabetically, but just on my screen. Um, let's start with you, Dr. Vivanti. Thank you, Alicia, for having us. My name is Giacomo Vivanti. I'm an associate professor and the leader of the Early Detection and Intervention Program at the AJ Drexel Autism Institute. I do research on autism intervention. My research is very much informed by my life experience of growing up with two brothers who are on the autism spectrum. Thank you. And I'm going to allow um, Grace and Diego to introduce themselves. And I want you to highlight when you did this research and also where you are now. Yes, thank you. Um, so I just finished my undergraduate education at Drexel. So this paper was written and the research was completed while um, Diego and I were still in our undergraduate careers. Um, now I am still at Drexel. I'm doing my master's in public health in epidemiology. And my name is Diego Aragon Guevara. Um, as mentioned by Grace, we were undergraduates when we did this as a part of the AJ Drexel Autism Institute's co-op program. Um, so that's how I got the chance to work with Giacomo and Elizabeth on this project. And yeah, and as well as Grace, really bring it to life. Um, currently, I am an incoming uh, clinical psychology PhD student at Binghamton University. Um, and my PI is Jennifer Gillis Matson. And last but not least, Dr. Sheridan. Thanks, Alicia, for having us. So great to be here talking about this important topic. Um, so I'm Elizabeth Sheridan. I am a clinical psychologist by training. At the Drexel Autism Institute, I direct our clinical core, which provides the assessment and intervention support for the studies like Dr. Vivanti and others are doing at our AJ Drexel Autism Institute. Um, I'm also an associate clinical professor who has a lot of research interests in best practices and dissemination in the community. So this topic is especially interesting to me because clinically I've heard a lot of patients and families over the years report back some concerns and or confusion about social media. So when Grace and Diego came to us last summer with this idea, I was initially thinking, oh dear, I don't know that um, I want to do research on social media. And that's a really good idea. We should do it. So that's how we got here. So um, Dr. Giacomo and Sheridan, why is studying TikTok so important? So it seems silly, but why, why is it so important that scientists and, and other people really look critically about the information that's on TikTok? Yeah, that's a really good question, Alicia. I'll start and then pass it off to Giacomo. Um, I think we all know that the power of social media is unmatched and that we have a lot to learn about how people are actually interfacing with it and whether or not they're using it effectively to improve the quality of their own lives. And the reach of it is just so great. Um, I personally, like you, Alicia, saying, you know, um, how you use it. I actually don't even have TikTok on my phone. Um, I know about it. I have nieces and nephews who show me videos all the time. But it's one of the platforms I personally don't use for entertainment. But I think it's important that we understand a lot of these platforms were created for entertainment. Um, instead, though, a lot of people are now using them for things like seeking out healthcare advice. I mentioned I'm a psychologist by training. I have some friends and, and grad school classmates who founded social media accounts as a professional saying, you know, I am a child psychologist and I'm giving you parenting advice or I'm giving you this. So like that type of influencer, if you will, or 
kind of social media creator is very different from someone who didn't go to graduate school or have expertise on a particular disorder. So I just think it's really important, like, why are we concerned about this? It's because I have patients and families coming to me seeing videos that are not accurate, um, that they're wondering, you know, am I wrong or is this is not my experience? So I think we as scientists and clinicians need to know what is being said on these platforms and also think about how that affects advocacy and the voices in the room, which I know Giacomo has, has a lot to say about. So I'll pass to him. Oh, I agree. There are, you know, this is potentially problematic either because you find content on TikTok that is blatantly misleading. Someone maybe wants to sell you a product and they tell you this is going to cure autism. Uh, or maybe someone wants to get a lot of attention by talking about a test that doesn't really exist that is going to reveal whether indeed you are autistic or not. And the test is something uh, that, that has no ground on any scientific evidence. And this is, this is misinformation and it changes the way families uh, might be ready or not ready to um, receive and interpret and work with the information that are provided to them by healthcare professionals. The other worry pertains to overgeneralization. And this is, this is what happens uh, when the, the general public's views are biased because some content or content on certain experiences, certain phenomena, certain populations or subgroups within the autism spectrum are overly represented, are represented more than others. And so, for example, under a representation of content related to individuals who require more intensive services and supports, can lead to less awareness on their experience. It can affect advocacy efforts, service provision for those individuals and, and their families. If I am someone who have to make decisions about services and supports, um, and I think that everybody who is on the autism spectrum is like Bill Gates, for example, then I might be less inclined to put um, dollars for services and supports, which is what is needed if someone, for example, um, needs 24 hours, seven supports. In that situation, it can be problematic if those who make decisions about supports have a view that is biased by what they see on, on, on platforms like TikTok. So you took, you guys took collectively the first step in identifying how to solve a problem, which was to examine the scope of the problem um, and figure out what was going on in a systematic scientific way. Um, so Diego, can you tell us a little bit about the study that you conducted, um, how you picked the different TikTok posts, uh, rated them, categorized them, and then analyzed them? Sure. So uh, we initially created a new TikTok account in order to um, sort of minimize the kind of influence or, you know, uh, effect that having a previously used TikTok account has on the algorithm. Um, and we focused, we focused on the autism hashtag, the hashtag autism hashtag, um, and examined and saved the first about 400 videos in descending order. Um, they're roughly sorted by view count or other engagement criteria. 
So that is primarily what we looked at. And the first thing that really popped to us was that the total uh, autism hashtag at the time had 11.5 billion views. Um, so that's for all the videos under that hashtag. Uh, that was last summer. I checked this morning uh, and it is currently up to 27 billion views. Um, so in a little over a year since we've collected the data, it has more than doubled, I think, which gives uh, an indication on how much reach and how much influence uh, these videos can have. Um, so from there, we wanted to look at the informational videos, which we operationally defined as videos advancing claims on autism in general, uh, including what causes it, how it should be diagnosed or, or treated. Um, and to this end, we want, really wanted to separate informational videos from any sort of videos documenting personal experience that might be uploaded by uh, any creators. So the way we kind of did this, uh, we tried to basically keep informational content strictly to making a claim about autism in general. Um, so the metaphor we use with Giacomo is that if I am an Italian person or knows an Italian person, and I can say that that Italian person loves pasta, then that is a personal experience. We can't really attempt a code or just decide whether that is accurate, inaccurate. Um, so that would be personal experience. However, if you say that, that using that Italian person, we can make a general statement that all Italian people love pasta. That is where that statement really crosses the line into um, uh, informational content. So once we applied these criteria to the videos, we ended up with 133 informational videos. Um, from there, we extracted the sort of engagement data, views and likes, as well as user info based on what was available in their profile or based on what was said by the creator. So if the creator said that they were a healthcare provider and we examined their uh, bio or their credentials and they were a healthcare provider, then we would mark them as such uh, in our data. And after the step was completed, we worked on coding all the videos as either accurate, inaccurate, or an overgeneralization based on their consistency with the existing scientific knowledge related to things like causes, presentation, diagnostic criteria, and evidence-based intervention. Um, so Grace and I were the two coders and we were supervised with, by Giacomo and Elizabeth who kind of oversaw everything and stepped in to make the final decision on videos that we were unsure about or that there was a discrepancy in coding about. Um, so those that was essentially our procedures and how we coded the data and examined the content. So I have a quick question here. So if I post as a parent, right, and I say, my child does this and posted a video of it, would that be considered an overgeneralization? No, that would be considered personal experience because you're okay. just making a statement about your child. It would okay. kind of step into the line of overgeneralization when you say, my child does this. And if your child exhibits similar behaviors, that is a sign okay. of autism. Okay, so those were excluded. Yes. Just to be clear. So, Grace, now that Diego talked about what you were looking at, um, what types of variables were you putting into the analysis? Can you talk a little bit about the accuracy, who the creator was, 
um, also the accuracy of the information and, and how did you kind of put all that together to make the story? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the three major variables that we were interested in was one, um, the accuracy of the videos. So we sorted them into whether they were accurate, inaccurate, or an overgeneralization. We also, like you said, focused on creator type. Um, so we identified creators who disclosed um, a diagnosis of autism and those who didn't, as well as people that shared that they were healthcare providers um, and those that were neither healthcare providers nor autistic creators. We also looked at engagement variables, including the likes and views. Um, and importantly, we wanted to look at the interaction between these three variables and how engagement varied across categories of accuracy, as well as categories of creator type. Also, how accuracy varied across categories of creator type. And Diego, so can you give us kind of an overview of what you found? Because here you have all these different variables, right? You have creator type, you have um, information delivered. Was it accurate, inaccurate, or generalization? You have likes and all of those other things. So what were the kind of main highlights you found? Yeah, so of the 133 videos that we analyzed, which accounted for roughly 200 million views, um, so which had a substantial reach, uh, 73% were classified as either an overgeneralization or inaccurate, 41% uh, inaccurate and 32% overgeneralization. Um, and this really indicates that there is the majority of informational content on TikTok shared about autism has been coded to be inaccurate or an overgeneralization. What were the differences across the, um, the creator type? Like was one more accurate than another? Yeah, so we did not find, we only found that uh, healthcare providers were more likely to post accurate content than non-healthcare providers. However, among the other groups, there was no uh, association with accuracy. And also the numbers of views between those who are accurate and inaccurate were about the same? Yes, uh, inaccurate content, inaccurate content had roughly the same amount of views. So that indicates that there is no real bias towards accurate or inaccurate information being promoted on the platform. So everybody's looking at things that are right and everybody's looking at things that are wrong. Right. One thing I've heard, and this is, of course, anecdotal, some people are relying on these TikTok videos as a substitute for a clinical diagnosis. So they're going online, reading, watching somebody, either the signs and, and features or someone who has autism explaining their personal experience um, and saying, oh, I relate to that person. I must have autism or I must be autistic. Did you look at this in the study? What do you find and what did you think or what do you think about this? So we talk a lot about the idea of assessment in particular and that we know that there's a huge waitlist crisis and that folks are having trouble accessing diagnoses. So I think there's something to be said for a lot of autistic adults that have been my patients or I've talked to otherwise talking about looking for resources and online communities to figure out, am I on the spectrum or aren't I? 
Um, I think what we want to be really careful about is the difference. The reason we looked at this study so carefully and we separated out informational versus personal experience is we as scientists, clinicians, folks who work with autistic communities, the parents, the individuals, people who love them, we want to make sure they're getting what they need. And we're not gatekeeping things. And we're not saying you can have this diagnosis, you can't. You know, I think that's something I spend a lot of time talking about and with colleagues and otherwise. Um, and we want to make sure that people know there's something to be said for the online community and feeling as though you can find support online for any diagnosis. People who have anxiety, depression, ADHD, autism, there is a community where you can have shared experiences that is super powerful and meaningful to people. So we want to be very careful that our paper, we were very intentional about these operational definitions and thinking about, we want to better understand the informational reach and extent to which folks are looking to things that might have myths or disinformation in them. And I'll give you one example. I had actually an adolescent young adult client of mine um, several years back. She showed me a video in my office after I did the feedback with her and confirmed, yes, she is on the spectrum. She showed me a video that she saw on TikTok like six months before we even did this diagnostic evaluation that she said, I knew it when I saw this person talk about their autism experience as a woman, that's exactly what my experience has been. And that's why I asked my mom if we could get a, a referral to have this evaluation, right? So that I would argue is a good use of shared experience. Someone saw something about, you know, whatever the constellation of that experience and, and she then used that to seek out a full evaluation. That's very different for me than seeing a 30 second anecdote on a video and saying, oh, you know, one of the examples, I think, um, you know, I play the same song on loop all the time. There might be many reasons someone plays the same song on loop all the time. It doesn't mean you're autistic just because you, you do that one behavior. And I think that's where it can get a little bit complicated. And this is why, this area needs so much more attention. This is, you know, there's a ton more research needed on this. I feel like we're just scratching the surface with the study. Yeah, and I will add that it's it's easy um, and to express some kind of contempt towards those who look for information on TikTok instead of relying on more formal sort of um, advice but it, it it's understandable and uh, you know to give a comparison when my brothers were diagnosed in the early 90s in italy there was no place to look for any information about autism the word autism was not did not exist outside of the medical vocabulary and the few doctors who knew anything about it um were definitely not able to communicate knowledge in a way that will reach many people. So I didn't know about that word and nobody I could talk with had any idea what that word meant. When I started uh, working as a professional in Italy and, and it was me diagnosing uh, individuals, it was pretty much the same that was in the early 2000s. So that was also a lonely word. Uh, where people who were impacted by autism existed in a space where the vocabulary was not shared with anybody else. So now we have, in a sense, more information, more access, and that's a good thing. What's really difficult is the fact that as a society, we didn't figure out how to 
use the potential of social media in a wise way. We didn't figure out on autism, but on, on, on many other um, areas of knowledge where there is potential, but also, um, also a lot of risk. I think that it's not only not a bad thing if people want to share their personal experience. I think it's helpful for them and for those who are uh, looking at the video, as long as you make it clear when you upload your video that you're talking about your own experience, that you don't want to give healthcare advice. And that's the responsibility of those who are uploading um, the videos. The scientific community can learn and should learn a lot from personal experiences uh, of people. That doesn't replace scientific knowledge, but it complements scientific knowledge. Uh, they, they're very much part of the same uh, curiosity and openness that should lead us to use that information, but use it in a way that ultimately leads to a scientifically informed approach to diagnosis, scientifically informed approach to intervention, and having conversations um, that are based on, on, on facts. Yeah, and Alicia, I'll just quickly add, Giacomo made me think of one more point, because we just heard Grace and Diego talk through the results, and we what we found was the idea that inaccurate and overgeneralized information was frequently liked and viewed at the same rate, right? So to your point, Giacomo, the average viewer doesn't know what creator is, if, if it's not. And that's a lot to put on someone, especially I work in the diagnostic space with a lot of parents of newly diagnosed kiddos. So one of the first places they go is they search things like hashtag autism, like what does this mean? And we see such variability in profiles, developmental levels, all of these things that one person's experience is just that. And I think when someone is passing their own personal experience off as generalizable to everyone, that's when we can really get into trouble when it comes to social media. I was going to say, going off of what you just said, Elizabeth, um, I think it's also the responsibility of the medical and research community to make sure that accurate information is as accessible as TikTok is. Like you said, I'm sure many people go home um, after finding out that their child has a diagnosis of autism and searching on the, in on the internet and on social media for answers. But we want to make sure that um, accurate information about autism and about everything is just as accessible as um, you know, TikToks or inaccurate information would be on the internet. So I'm thinking about either the parent or the person, the autistic person who goes on TikTok and the first thing they do is hashtag autism. And so the first thing that happens is these videos pop up. What do you want them to know? I mean, Okay, Shakama pointed at me. I, I will take a stab at it. I think it's a, it's a big question, Alicia. And I think it's something we're all grappling with. I say to families, anytime I, I'm working with any autistic, young adult, adult, parent of a child, I say to them, like, I think we need to pause and think about where are you in your journey right now? And what trusted providers do you have in your world that can shape and inform next decisions? that are not on Google, TikTok, or other social media platforms when it comes to the judgment and decision-making for how do I help this person live the best life they can live. So that's where I start clinically. What you asked though about, you know, just the, you know, my nephews and nieces who are on this platform all the time doing hashtag whatever. I think we as 
parents and teachers and clinicians, scientists, all of us as, as consumers of these medias, plural, not just TikTok, but Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of it. We need to remember that misinformation coexists at similar levels as, as the information that is reliable and accurate. So to Grace's point, I do think actually this podcast might be the straw that breaks the back of me downloading TikTok, if you even can still. I thought there was a time where we, we couldn't use it anymore, but I, I've never had it. But maybe I do need to, to actually have it. As a healthcare provider, the last thing I want to do is be out there, you know, tweeting or, or I don't even, some my, I get teased because I'm so bad at, at using professional social media. I don't want to do that, but I also, to Grace's point, think that we owe it to the families and folks we work with to stick with the times and to know that these platforms are very, you know, dynamic and they're constantly evolving. And until we, you know, try to put as much accurate information out there as possible, it might be a disservice. So I do think there's something to be said for us as a community engaging more, but also reminding people that the answers do not lie. When I have a medical diagnosis, I don't go to TikTok, obviously, or other places. I go to my doctor and I talk to them. So I think that's just an important point I want to drive home. Um, but Giacomo, do you have other, other ideas there? I think it's very important to consider the intent of the video. You know, someone who uploads the videos, they might do so because they want to sell you a product, for example, there are red flags for that. Uh, you can look at uh, some information on the biography, on the bio of, of those who are uploading the videos that can give you some uh, indication of what is the purpose of this video uh, being uploaded. And also being aware of your own biases. We all have confirmation bias. We look for information that confirm ideas that we already have. And so it, you can, your, the algorithms are designed so that you will see, once you see a video, you will see a video that has similar content. And so you can get this idea that you're exposed to all the information that is available when indeed what you're seeing is information that is confirming your previous biases through the way the, these algorithms um, work. So talking with people is also uh, not, uh, it's not just about saying social media are, are in itself evil, but there are algorithms that tend to work in a way that can sort of calcify certain ideas or take you to only be exposed to certain content, and that can make it more difficult for you to be open to other content. Diego, I know you, you probably have some words of wisdom from the data analysis perspective. One thing I wanted to add uh, to Giacomo and Elizabeth's point is that uh, the amount of healthcare providers actually on TikTok was very small, only nine, I believe, out of the 133 videos analyzed were produced or created by a healthcare professional. Um, the, uh, there were more videos created by people that were not uh, autistic creators or healthcare providers. So they were just people on the internet telling millions of people the information about autism, that there are more of those videos than there were videos of healthcare professionals. And that healthcare professionals, on average, because I think partially the number of, of videos were so small, but those videos received less likes and views 
than any other video. So the videos that are more accurate, that are being uh, created by healthcare professionals, do not have the same reach uh, compared to the other creators, some of which have uh, no real experience with autism. Uh, I think that one of the dangers of social media is that engagement criteria like likes and views are sort of currency in these platforms where the goal is to amass as many likes and views as possible. Um, and this incentivizes people who are not healthcare providers or individuals with autism or autistic individuals looking to share their experiences. Um, it incentivizes people that are not neither of those groups into producing TikTok con uh, content about autism solely because they see that it is sort of a hot topic, um, which is dangerous when you kind of consider the amount of misinformation that those people could uh, produce. Diego, that's such an important point. And Alicia, I just want to add one more piece, because I think when I meet with families and say, or individuals, young adults, adults, and say, what's next for you? You know, how are you going to live your best life ultimately? The, the thing I tell them to stay away from is what Giacomo and Diego already hit on, this idea that anyone who's selling you something, who's saying the word cure, who's saying the word, you know, fix all the, all challenges or difficulties you might experience with this one pill or one treatment. Like we've been seeing that in the literature for decades, even before social media platforms, that there were folks preying on vulnerable populations, not just autism, anyone who had a child or person they loved looking for some sort of help or support. There are, there are folks in the world who take advantage of that. And so I think that's the number one red flag that if and when you see a creator, to Diego's point, that's trying to do something really flashy to get those views, to get those likes, that is a red flag, buyer beware. Is this accurate or not is something I want to do some research on before I follow through with that. So I just, I've been saying that clinically for almost two decades with families. And I think we need to reiterate that to all healthcare providers and folks who work with, with the autistic community in particular. So TikTok was the home of the start of the Tide Pod Challenge, where kids were encouraged to eat Tide Pods. It was also the home of the Choking Game Challenge, where kids would choke themselves until they passed out. And also the Pass Out Challenge, which was slightly related, where you would hold your breath until you would pass out. And this led to kids actually being hospitalized. So I'm going to say, in my personal opinion, that TikTok can be pretty dangerous and that you should view a lot of what you see on TikTok with some measure of um, you know, doubt. Um, and of course, go to a healthcare provider or go to a more reputable website before you take anything that you see on TikTok as the truth. And also, I don't want to discourage people from sharing their own personal experiences, but beware when someone says, this is my experience, and therefore all people with autism, X, Y, and Z, that's a red flag too, because anyone in the autism community will tell you that you cannot make those overgeneralization statements, that everyone with autism or everyone who's autistic has their own unique perspective and their own unique interactions with the world. And so if you see something that says like, oh, this is my experience, then great, maybe you can learn something. Um, in terms of their own perspectives and what they are feeling, but don't let it take you down the road of, okay, this is what happens with 
all autistic adults or all autistic girls. People are monetizing this. This is how people make a lot of money because they get a lot of likes and then advertisers want to pay them. So um, you should just be aware of what you see on, on TikTok and even Instagram because it may not always be completely accurate. So do you guys have any other final final words? I think all of us could talk for another hour, Alicia, but I think one thing we hit on that I just want to drive home again very clearly is the idea that I think the lived experience cannot be understated. Like the idea that folks are sharing their personal experience and journey, and we value that and we want folks to find their community and find their people in that way. The reason we're looking and doing this study and emphasizing in the paper that we just want to think about the misleading information and the extent to which that can impact real lives and families and their decisions, like that's something we as a community of researchers, scientists, clinicians need to really grapple with. Um, and I think there's a huge, we could do a whole separate podcast around the medical model of autism versus the social model of autism and the idea of the word disorder an impairment and dysfunction, you know, and as someone who is a diagnostician, there have been adults in particular who have either emailed me or found me at conferences to ask about our medical community model that we're gatekeeping diagnoses. And the thing that I say to them in, in that way is we actually, I never tell a person, a human being, how they identify. If you identify as someone at, who is autistic, you don't need to get that from me in a, in a written report. Um, but in order to access the medical model services we have in our country and those services and supports, we do have a model in which the DSM dictates autism spectrum disorder. So I, I think we just need to also, because all the attention this paper got, some folks either tweeted me or emailed me to say, well, you know, what is the, the framework by which you're judging information? And we're going on the scientific knowledge and framework that we have right now which we don't, we're not saying it's perfect, but I think we need to just be mindful and careful folks who are listening to this in particular, that myself, a lot of my colleagues that are in the diagnostic space in particular, I am not trying to gatekeep a diagnosis or, or prevent someone from accessing services because of this waitlist problem that's a whole separate issue. But I do think we wanna validate autistic voices in particular, lived experiences, that, that that's very important. In social media, there's power in that. We just want the consumers of that media to remember that misinformation can coexist with this accurate information in a way that they really need to filter it carefully. I think one thing that uh, is important as a drive home message that I said at the beginning of the podcast when we started recording was that the views have effectively doubled uh, since last year. When we measured this, it had 11.5 billion. It's now up to 27 billion. This is um, even though the content that we measured uh, is relatively new in the sense that it was only a year ago, a year on social media is a long time. So the kind of content that could have been produced in that year to effectively double this view count um, is not represented in this article. And I think yeah. that is really something that is uh, just in the nature of social media that it is constantly changing, new content is constantly being produced, and it makes tracking this content uh, very difficult. So uh, this, the content that we captured in the study uh, is very relevant to uh, the overall hashtag, 
but there could be new content produced that is not captured in the study. A significant amount. And Diego, this is really this really speaks about the uh, the competition between the production of scientifically right. grounded knowledge that go through a process. This you know establishing the methods, making sure those methods are objective, allow for an objective um, evaluation of your outcomes, and then there's a peer review process. And if you're lucky, maybe one year from when you were studying what were you studying, your information will be out. Well, you can upload a video on TikTok in 30 seconds. So by the time you are talking about a phenomena in a scientific peer-reviewed study, that phenomena has already became, become bigger or, or wider or reach more people. Right. Well, thank you guys so much, not just for this podcast, but for conducting this study, because I think a lot of people have actually been wondering about this, but there's been no kind of scientific evaluation, and now there is. So don't totally dismiss TikTok, but think very critically about it. And keep on posting personal experiences. Just make sure that they're your own personal experiences and you don't overgeneralize them. So thank you guys so much. Um, and I look forward to everyone's feedback about this podcast and this paper. Don't stop, make it pop, DJ,